6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 10 through 14. makes reference to the house of Israel as well as Judah. Don't be confused. The house of Israel over a hundred years before was judged for that and taken into slavery. And the, the subtle thought here that Jeremiah is, that's in front of us is, is that uh, Israel was judged. Judah will be judged no less. In fact, in concept more so because they should have had the benefit of realizing how God treated Israel, the northern kingdom, the house of Israel. They went into idolatry, didn't listen, were warned, didn't listen, and were taken into slavery. A hundred years later, Judas still doesn't listen, doesn't repent, so they're going to do the same thing. And of course, the message that should echo in our ears is, what about the United States? We were called by God in a very special way as a very unusual country and with a very unusual mission and mandate. And as we looked towards him, even as a nation in our own in our own way, in those early years, he blessed this nation incredibly and used it as a, a vehicle throughout the world. Do we qualify today? Can we call ourselves a Christian nation? I don't think so. And um, you know, one of the questions that hangs heavy upon us all is, what's the scenario? What's the horizon hold for us? unless we recognize that the path of our blessing, just as Israel and Judah, was our being called by his name and being uh, uh, mindful of his blessing, as we turn to become a uh, secular, humanistic society, rebellious against all these original ideas, we should not be surprised to reap the whirlwind. And as we look around our horizon, it is scary. If you look at the federal deficits, which drive the trade imbalances, the fact that we're not competing or in, a, in the world economy, the fact that we have more debt than net worth in our corporations in recent years, that we have uh, an unprecedented amount of household debt in terms of our producible income. As you look at the percent of gross national product as a percent of our, uh, the, the percent of that that goes to a debt service, it takes that any economist who's been looking at it historically is shocked and frightened and concerned. As we see ourselves beset by our enemies, we an honest, informed appraisal of our uh, military security is scary, very fragile. In fact, we're facing at all fronts an armed aggressor who has shown his mettle um, and who is, does not have poor technology and is armed by a factor of several times at least where we are in each in each front, we're in really serious trouble. And if you look at our society and watch it unwind, the ethics, the uh, pestilence brought about by our uh, excesses, 
doesn't take much insight to see parallels between the tragedy that Jeremiah foresaw with his country and the burden you and I might have if we can see with clear eyes the, the uh, predicament of our country. The good news is, I don't mean to sound gloomy, let me give you the good news. God has not told you not to pray for this people. We don't have the injunction that Jeremiah did. To the best of my spiritual understanding, you are encouraged throughout the New Testament to pray for your leaders and to pray for this country. I think that's more important than the ballot box. I think it's more important than a thousand other things you can spend your time on. And those of you that might be led to have prayer groups or participate in prayer groups that you're already in and somehow allocate some portion of your energies to praying for this country, that God might send a revival, restore us spiritually to some awareness of what made us great in the first place, or more precisely where our blessings came from, then maybe he will allow us some time for our kids to enjoy what you and I have. I really believe that God's greatest pain is the pain of ingratitude. I think that's really what I hear here in terms of what he's saying to Judah for all that he did for this country, this nation, Judah. And what are they doing? They're running around paying homage to these brazen contraptions and carved wood and, boy, the ingratitude he must feel. Anyway, verse 18, uh, last part of this chapter is... Um, a very specific, you know, we talk about this, you know, the conspiracy earlier, the Lord using the collective broad generic sense. Here we have a very specific crisis. It's the first of personal crises in Jeremiah's life. Jeremiah was an aggressive prophet of God, and it should not surprise us that um, he was the victim of uh, plots against him. This one is pretty tough. Uh, I might point out, uh, Anathoth was his hometown, okay? Uh, it was the home of the priestly house of Abiathar, who was a friend of David. But the house was deposed by Solomon and who supplanted with the house of Zadok as the high priest. So the priests of Anathoth were sort of, you know, uh, on the outs, if you will. And uh, so they've been out since the Solomon's time. The people of Anathoth, and that included Jeremiah's friends, his family, and the people in his hometown didn't just reject him. They were collectively involved in a plot to assassinate him. Can you imagine that? I mean, you know, you can disagree with a guy's preaching, but uh, that's going a bit far. But that's what Jeremiah is facing here. Verse 18, and the, Lord hath, uh, and the Lord hath given me knowledge of it, and I know it. Then thou showedest me their doings. But I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter. And I knew not that they had devised plots against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be no more remembered. But, O Lord of hosts, who judgest righteously, who who testest the heart and the mind. Let me see thy vengeance on them, for unto thee have I revealed my cause. Therefore thus saith the Lord of the men of Anathoth, who seek thy life, saying, Prophesy not in the name of the Lord, 
that thou die not by our hand. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and daughters shall die by famine. And there shall be no remnant of them. For I will bring evil upon the men of Anathoth, even the year of their judgment. Heavy trip. See, even Judah is going to be judged, and they'll go into captivity, but a remnant will return. We hear that, and by the way, you know, this whole big deal of Nehemiah and Ezra and and, 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 I mean, should say Ezra and Nehemiah, and the return from Babylon 70 years later? Don't be too impressed. It's like 30,000. Not a bunch. That's all that came back. But of Anathoth, no remnant. See, there will be no remnant of them. That may sound, not sound like much, but at least the other tribe, when it's all over after the 70 years and they come back, there'll be a remnant to reestablish. Not here. They get their due, if you will. This is just the first of a number of personal crises in Jeremiah's life. It gets pretty heavy a little later on. But it's interesting. Uh, Jeremiah, shortly in another chapter 2, will complain to the Lord a little too rashly. And the Lord rebukes him, recommissions him, and from that time on he never complains again. And, in fact, the Lord just watches over him uh, throughout this ministry. But all the way through he gets opposition. From uh, for even even though he has an Zedekiah, a king that tries to help him, his second tier, you know, uh, are are rebellious and and they 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 attempt to do Jeremiah in. So he has a pretty tough time. That brings us to chapter twelve. Chapter twelve is going to take up um, one of the great problems of the Old Testament. One of the great problems in the Old Testament is the prosperity of the wicked. That theme comes up a lot. We always think of that of, uh, as Job. The book of Job deals with that and doesn't really close the loop. You know, there's still some, a lot of loose ends in Job. David in Psalm 37 deals with that. In Psalm uh, 73 of Asaph, 37, 73, interesting transposition. The book of Habakkuk deals with that. Now, you and I are, should not be bothered that much as the Old Testament prophets were about that subject. Because we have First uh, Peter 1 and other passages which allow us to view history from the perspective of the cross of Christ. So we very appropriately attach less importance to some temporal prosperity of the wicked or something because we have a, hopefully, if we're well spiritually uh, informed, much less of an issue. But the Old Testament prophets, it's a, it's a repeated issue and it comes up here in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1, Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee. Yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it sounds a little presumptuous, doesn't it? It reminds me of Abraham in Genesis 18, right? Yeah, I just, you know, let me, let, let's review this, Lord. Let me, you really know what you're doing, you know. I don't laugh. Don't we all do that? I do. Try to catch myself, but, you know, we may not do it quite so. I should say ethnically characteristically. There's a term for this. It's called chutzpah. And uh, there are books written on defining chutzpah. My favorite one is a chutzpah is when a guy kills his mother and father and then throws himself on the mercy of the court because he's an orphan. That's chutzpah. And there are hundreds of these have been collected throughout the years. But there's a certain, you know, um, daring do of, of, in a... And it's clear that Jeremiah had certain ethnic characteristics, and this, to me, sounds like one of them, you know. 
Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Why doth the way of the wicked prosper? Oh boy, don't we wish we knew. Why doth the way of the wicked prosper? Why are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Thou hast planted them, yea, they have taken root. They grow, yea, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their heart. Ooh, isn't that an interesting phrase? You know, the most, the most bitter, painful treachery is done to us, not by the world or, or worldly secular business traffic that can hurt, what really hurts is when you have someone who is near with you in your mouth but far in their heart, a Christian brother who takes advantage of those kinds of things. Boy, that hurts. Verse 3, But thou, O Lord, knowest me, that thou hast seen me and tested mine heart toward thee. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long shall the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? for the wickedness of those who dwell in it. that graphic? The beasts are consumed and the birds because, the, because they said, He shall not see our last end. If thou hast run with the footmen, and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which, they, in which thou trustest they wearied thee, then how wilt thou do in the swelling of the Jordan. In other words, if a little bit is good, a whole lot's a lot worse. So, another way. For even thy brethren and the house of thy father, even they have dealt treacherously with thee. Yea, they have called a multitude after thee. Believe them not, though they speak fair words unto thee. An interesting problem here. You've got to recognize Jeremiah is is uh, really upset. And he's even making comments here within the family. And this isn't some abstraction. A few verses before, he gets extricated from a plot to assassinate him that included his family as part of the deal. Can you imagine that? It's easy to say, but isn't that tough? That guy, is, that guy knows the meaning of the word lonely. Verse 7, I have forsaken mine house, I have left mine heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. Mine heritage is unto me like a lion in the forest. It crieth out against me, therefore have I hated it. Mine heritage is unto me like a speckled bird. The birds round about are against her. Come, assemble all the beasts of the field. Come to devour. Strange idiom. In fact, the Septuagint version translates the speckled bird as a hyena. There's some translational problems, but what most of the scholars believe he's talking about a speckled bird, and the point he's making that you and I might not be sensitive to, birds always attack a strange bird. If you have a group of birds and there's a strange one among them, they'll attack the, the different one. They just do. It's one of the characteristics. At least it's that observation in nature that he is, uh, he is uh, see, like mine heritage is to me like a speckled bird, and the birds round about. Uh, are against her. So in other words, there's a bird that's different, and so the other birds attack it. We do the same thing. We do the same thing. One of the most interesting experiences you'll do in a group dynamics class is discover the role of the deviant in the group. 
And a group of people, and one person's got a different view, immediately mm-hmm. attacked by the group, one by one, collectively. You know, groups attack deviants, as you all know. Verse 10. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard, and they have trampled my portion underfoot, and they have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. Don't be confused by the word shepherds. It's used here to mean leaders. And these aren't the good guys. These are the bad guys. This is an indictment of the leadership in Judah that has you know, brought about all this stuff. Verse 11, they have made it desolate, and being desolate, it mourneth unto me. The whole land is made desolate, because no man layeth it to heart. The spoilers are come upon all high places through the wilderness, for the sword of the Lord shall devour from one end of the land even to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. They have, they have sown wheat, but they shall reap thorns. And they have put themselves to pain, but shall not profit. And they shall be ashamed of your revenues because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord against all my neighbors that touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. So that's the same uh, theme that we've been talking about. Uh, incidentally, all of this is going to, is anticipating a couple of chapters, chapter three, chapters 47, 48, and 49, which is going to go into a lot of this in more detail. Verse 15, it shall come to pass that after I have plucked them out, I'll return and have compassion on them and will bring them again, every man to his heritage and every man to his land. Now, all through Jeremiah, we have not only this very direct um, warning of judgment, but he will uh, put through it these promises. And here's the promise of the return. He's going to talk a lot more about that later, but I just call your attention that this isn't an unmitigated, you know, dirge of, of, of judgment. It's, it's, uh, a promise there to return. In, in verse 16, And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name, the Lord liveth, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then shall they be built in the midst of my people. But if they shall not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, saith the Lord. Again, we could talk uh, about the remnant returning uh, if we're going to really develop that idea, we want to go to Romans 11. We're also going to go into the first three verses of Genesis 12. But we'll have frequent occasion to do that anyway. But for those of you that are looking at notes, that's a particular uh, dimension that you could uh, deal with. And uh, Now, interestingly, the same enemy of Judah is also going to destroy the enemies of Judah, i.e. Syria, Moab, and Ammon will be destroyed by the same Babylonian forces that are, God is going to use to judge them. We could spend a lot of time with each one of these, but I think you get the general flavor of the message that Jeremiah is hammering away. Uh, now we get to chapter 13, and we have a very interesting event that occurs, and for some reason it has evoked all kinds of scholastic comment. And I'm kind of puzzled because it just somehow doesn't strike me that the issue is what all the fear is about. But let's go through and... Uh, and uh, uh, review what he says, and then and, and talk about some of the implications. It's just a little object lesson, very similar to the kind of thing that we found in the book of Ezekiel and Zechariah, where the prophet is instructed to do something that has a a more you know a message to it. 
You remember how Zeke got a lot of these things, you know, lie on your back one way and the other way, and all these little things he did that apparently did ceremonially, quite public, as a way, an object lesson, a mechanic to instruct the people. Uh, Jeremiah gets one of these right here. There's several in Jeremiah, pretty interesting ones. This one's uh, uh, really kind of fundamentally pretty simple, but it's evoked a lot of comment. Chapter 13, verse 1, Thus saith the Lord unto me, Go and purchase a linen belt, or girdle, and put it upon thy loins, and put it not in water. So I bought a belt according to the word of the Lord, put it on my loins, and the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, Take the belt that thou hast bought, which is upon thy loins, and arise and go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. So I went, and I hid it by the Euphrates, as the Lord commanded me. And it came to pass that after many days that the Lord said unto me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take the belt from there, which I commanded thee to hide there. All right. So, so verse 7, Then I went to the Euphrates, and digged, and I took the belt from the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the belt was marred, it was profitable for nothing. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Like what you believe was mildewed, I mean, you know, linen wasn't supposed to be wet like that. So being a cleft of a rock near the river, it got wet. The wetness wrecked it. That's the point. It's marred. It's moldy. It's unusable. Now, the translation says linen belt. Some scholars believe that this was an intimate undergarment. With the priest wore, you know, linen, you know, linen girdle. Or loin, it, it's got, it, it's, it binds his loins. So the exact garment, there's some scholastic dispute of the exact issues, but and I won't get into all that, but but it's, it's, it's an intimate garment, and, and so forth, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Anyway, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, after this manner will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who walk in the imagination of their heart, and walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them, even shall even be like this belt which is good for nothing. For as the belt clingeth to the loins of a man, so have I cause to cling unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, that they might be unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory. But they would not hear. Therefore thou shalt speak unto them this word. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Every wineskin shall be filled with wine, and they shall say unto me, Do we not certainly know that every wineskin shall be filled with wine? The word is peroth, and is translated Euphrates here. And uh, the first question is, did he really do this, or is it just a vision? Now, I don't know about you, but I couldn't care less, you know. But, I mean, I'm usually strict on those things, but in this case, there are commentaries that spend a lot of time trying to figure out, did he really do this, or is this just some kind of vision? What's the problem? Well, the Euphrates is hundreds of miles from where, from Jerusalem. And so they have a real problem. You mean that Jeremiah, to run this errand, goes over 100 miles? Two round trips, they say. Okay. Well, the word is peroth, which is like the Ephrata, but with an initial letter missing. And so whether it was it, was it really the Euphrates or not? 
If it wasn't, it was intended that we think it should. Now, there are some scholars that believe that the actual word is para, which is a wadi farah, which is only three miles northeast of Anathoth, near Jerusalem. That's only about six miles. That makes more sense. And so there's a big bunch of discussion about that. First point, there was a lot of time during Jeremiah's ministry where there wasn't necessarily war. Between the first and third siege of Nebuchadnezzar is 19 years, and there's three major sieges and three major deportations deportations and invasions. But there's a lot of time in between where there was peace. And secondly, a lot of evidence that Jeremiah had errands to run. There's an evidence that he went to and from Babylon. And this may have occurred when he was on one of these tra trips to go ahead and do this thing and then go to Babylon for some I issue and then come back. And so there's some scholars that, you know, I, why it's such a big deal, I don't know. So I may have missed the point, but I don't see why there's all that to do. There's three possibilities. One, some scholars feel it was just a vision, and, and you know, it was an idiomatic kind of way of communicating. I don't think so, personally. I think he really did this. And uh, was it Euphrates? I think so. But it, did it have to be? I don't think so. And so that's not a big deal in my mind, at least. The whole idea, though, is, is that which is going to spoil them did come from Babylon, and the Euphrates is symbolic of Babylon, so that, that all sort of fits. And by the way, something else about these linen belts and linen undergarments they were, a, they were an intimate garment, and they were a symbol of service to the priests. And you can find all that stuff in, uh, um, in fact, you'll find a, a symbol that used symbolically as service in Luke 12, verse 35, and in John 13 and elsewhere. Remember when he washes their feet, he takes his linen. It's a, a symbol of service. And for the priests, it was a symbol of service, okay? And in this case, they're unfit for service, because they're marred and moldy and, and unusable. That's basically the concept, okay? Why were they moldy and stuff? Because of the influence of the Euphrates, i.e. Babylon, idolatry. See, there's a, you can build on that, right? Oh, so if you're in this priest thing, uh, the priestly linen belts, you can find that in Exodus 19.6 and other places, for those of you that want to chase that down. So I personally see an identity with the Euphrates. If it wasn't the Euphrates, it was a name that looked closely enough that we would look at it as the Euphrates. Idiomatically, it would mean that. So if it is, if it does turn out that it's six miles in South Asia, Jerusalem, fine. Linguistically, it acts like a pun because it's the concept of Euphrates is, is, is emerges through this. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.